Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with the first public hearing of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, which are about to begin, with an expectation that Trump will emerge at the centre of an insurrection that he and his team of dead-enders and congressional attack dogs organised, led and executed. Joining us to discuss whether the committee will make the case that this was a fascist coup attempt is Federico Fulkelstein, a professor of history and director of the Janey Program in Latin American Studies at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lane College. The author of seven books on fascism, populism, dirty wars, the Holocaust and Jewish history in Latin America and Europe His latest books are From Fascism to Populism in History, A Brief History of Fascist Lies, and most recently, Fascist Mythologies, The History and Politics of Unreason in Borges, Freud, and Schmidt. We will discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times, White Replacement Theory is Fascism's New Name, and how the Stop the Steal lie that Trump has manufactured and has since become a bedrock GOP belief fits the category of fascist lies. Then we'll get an assessment on whether Ukraine could win small or win big in the over 100-day war Putin has unleashed, with no end in sight that is beginning to resemble World War I trench warfare. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, What if Ukraine Wins? Victory in the War Would Not End the Conflict with Russia. Then finally, we'll investigate the global food crisis caused by Russia's war in Ukraine, which the head of the UN describes as threatening to, quote, unleash an unprecedented wave of hunger and misery, leaving social and economic chaos in its wake. Joining us is Chris Barrett, Professor of Applied Economics and Management and an International Professor of Agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a Professor in the Departments of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agriculture and Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Federico Finkelstein, who is a professor of history and director of the Janey Program in Latin American Studies at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lang College. The author of seven books on fascism, populism, dirty wars, the Holocaust, and Jewish history in Latin America and Europe. 
His latest books are From Fascism to Populism in History, A Brief History of Fascist Lies, and most recently, Fascist Mythologies, The History and Politics of Unreason in Borges, Freud, and Schmidt. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, White Replacement Theory is Fascism's New Name. Welcome to Background Briefing, Federico Finkelstein. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Federico. And as we speak, the hearings are beginning before the House Select Committee investigating the January the 6th insurrection. Do you think that they will try to make a case that this was a fascist coup attempt? Well, I certainly hope so. I, I mean, what, what we have here is, uh, I mean, however we approach what happened on January 6th, I think it will be very hard not to present it as a coup. That is to say, I mean, the definition of a coup is either internal or external actors attempting to uh, stop the workings of democracy, the workings of, of the constitutional process. And this is exactly what happened. So it is a coup. And if you add other uh, dimensions of what Trumpism has been, what you have is certainly a fascist danger in that, in that coup. And since you've studied Latin American coups, normally... It's the Cordillo uh, who gets the military to stage a coup and hold on to power at the expense of his democratic predecessors. In this case, for January the 6th, Trump did not enlist the military, but he did enlist militias like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. So does that still fit the category? Well, it fits the category of a coup. Right. I mean, there are certain different types of coup. I mean, in Latin American history, the most uh, traditional coup is that there is an elected president and sectors, uh, I mean, generally sectors in the armed forces overthrow the government and install themselves in power in an illegal manner, in a de facto, uh, de facto government. And yet there are a few instances where what, what happened here also happened there. I mean, a populist president, uh, Fujimori, in Peru, for example, he has been the elected leader, and at some point he had impatience, let's say, with the workings of democracy, and overthrew his own government in order to remain as a, as a dictator, not as an elected president. The same had happened before uh, in Uruguay with President Bordaberry, but these are few instances, or an ex there are exceptions to the rule, whereas Generally, elected presidents do not go against the, their own, uh, let's say, the democratic process that elected them. But this is what happened with Trump. And is there any historical analogies with, with whipping up a mob with uh, incendiary rhetoric like fight like hell, etc., and order them to march on the Capitol? Are there... Other analogies in the, on all the study that you've done, Federico, on fascist coups? Well, I mean, uh, again, with the, the, with the difference that those attempting the coup uh, uh, were not in power, right? So, for example, the fascist march on Rome, Mussolini gathered his, I mean, his militias and the members of his, uh, of his movement and, and were, you know, marching on Rome, on Rome in order to somehow put pressure on the system, but what happened there is that they were called to government even before the, the that march was, you know, substantiated in terms of reaching uh, the gates of power, so to speak. So what happened there was, I think, even worse because democracy was uh, betrayed from within. The king of Italy invited Mussolini to form a government rather than 
punish him for what was going on, which which was a coup. So that is a, a distinction uh, I think that we should that we should make. On the other hand, these dictators, Mussolini, Hitler, were um, democratically elected and they destroyed democracy from within. Uh, once, but not not with a with a self coup. In any case, what I think we should emphasize here is that what you have is an elected president trying to destroy democracy from within. So there are many parallels with fascism appear uh, as well. And he's destroying democracy from within in order to stay in power. And Correct. since then, he has manufactured this lie that has become a bedrock belief in the Republican Party. You know, the stop the steal lie. I mean, it's absolutely metastasized. 80% of Republicans believe that Trump is the legitimate president and Biden is an imposter. So does that fit the definitions of Federico? in your book, A Brief History of Fascist Lies? Yes, well, I mean, uh, yes, uh, I mean, there are many parallels uh, 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 there. I mean, at this point, I see Trump, I call him a wannabe fascist rather than a fascist. He's a populist demagogue that is uh, very getting very close to what fascism was, and yet not there, also because of his own uh, failures, right? I mean, for example, this is a leader that said, I will go with you to the capital and then decided not to go. So he's kind of an interrupted fascist, a wannabe fascist rather than a fascist, in my view. Right, but he does admire fascists, does he not? He admires Putin yes, and, and Erdogan and they, all these other global, well, I don't know whether they fit the category of fascists, but uh, strongmen, I suppose, is the euphemism, right? Well, certainly he has like this love for authoritarians and autocrats, and this includes, of course, uh, you know, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, even fascists in the past. Uh, but then what we have to think about is that, I mean, he certainly has a use uh, for fascist techniques and for the fascist playbook. Uh, and this is what was at stake. I mean, had he succeeded, uh, in my view, in his coup, and if you add into into that success, uh, you know, uh, success that he, of course did not happen. But if you add this high idea that had he succeeded, if you add the xenophobia, if you add the racism, if you add uh, the violence, the glorification of violence, and the fascist way of lying, then it would have been perhaps uh, more possible to call him a fascist. That that did not happen. Not only because he uh, he was a failure, but also because we, uh, as a democracy, we stopped him. I mean, certainly in other in other uh, cases of, of fascist success, what happened is that the army, the judiciary, and most citizens were not apathic about it, and they were quite worried. And uh, sorry, the opposite. What happened is that in in these cases of fascism, they were apathic. They were not uh, you know they were not defending. The values of the of the constitutional system. Happily, this this was not the case here. I mean, as we know, uh, even from what the committee is investigating uh, and other reports, you know, uh, the most important military person in the U.S. was concerned, and he did not want to be used in, in what he believed may, may have been a coup d'état. Uh, I'm referring here, of course, to General Miley. What I think I, I was referring to was that when when fascism succeeded, it was because uh, the judiciary sectors, I mean, the armed forces, and certainly the press and the citizenship were not engaged in defending democracy. And happily, this was not the case here, uh, because even from the perspective of the military, 
certainly the press and 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 you know and important members of the judiciary, this was a problem was going on. And and in a way, in a way, the coup and and uh, I mean uh, and the risk of fascism was averted. Uh, so here we see a difference between uh, the present and the past. But I think this this risk, this danger of fascism, has not evaporated. And, and as Ian, you were suggesting as well, that what happened is that this uh, continuity, I mean, this insistence on fa- on big on big lies, on fascist lies, uh, uh, opens the risk. Uh, I mean, as a, as a clear and present danger for for the for the future. And again, I'm speaking with Federico Finkelstein, who's a professor of history and director of the Janey Program in Latin American Studies at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lang College, the author of seven books on fascism, populism, dirty wars, the Holocaust, and Jewish history in Latin American Europe. His latest books are From Fascism to Populism in History, A Brief History of Fascist Lies, and most recently, Fascist Mythologies, The History and Politics of Unreason in Borges, Freud, and Schmidt. And he has an article of the Los Angeles Times, White Replacement Theory is Fascism's New Name. So, Federico, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, of course, who apparently in the first hearing from the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, apparently is going to tie them in to the coup attempt. They've already, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers have already been charged separately by the Justice Department with seditious conspiracy. So what's the difference there between sedition and, I mean, I guess it's, <laughs> there's no difference between fascism and, and sedition, I suppose, but how does that definition of sedition fit into your studies? I mean, when we compare with the with the history of fascism in the past, clearly, I mean, I think the march on Rome, for example, when what uh, that we were talking before, when Mussolini attempted to, you know, to grab the government, uh, um, I think it's it, you know he could have uh, been, in my view, judge of sedition, but instead he was nominated to be the new leader of the country. So, uh, in in fear of fascism, that democracy, Italian democracy, reacted by by giving him power, which was a big mistake, and it lasted almost two decades, that mistake, and, and with terrible consequences for the country. So I think, uh, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, but I think these attempts to de- destroy democracy from within should be met, you know, with the to the full extent of the law, and should be, you know, prosecuted and, and tried. Well, apparently, the committee have indicated that they will show that former President Donald Trump was at the center of, quote, a coordinated multi-step effort to overturn the results of the 2020 elections that resulted in a mob of his supporters storming the halls of Congress and disrupting the official electoral count, which is a pivotal step in the peaceful transfer of presidential power. And that they will basically make the case that Trump was involved in a systematic drive to invalidate the 2020 election to remain in power. And just to quote uh, Adam Schiff, who's a member of the uh, committee, we'll demonstrate the prolonged effort to overturn a presidential election, how one strategy to subvert the election led to another culminating in a violent attack on our democracy. So this is not just going to be about January the 6th itself, the storming of the Capitol, but apparently about what went on behind closed doors in these various meetings with Trump and his co-conspirators prior to that. So 
Do you expect a real case to be made here that the American people will be able to access and understand? I, I do, I do. I, I, it's clear the image that is emerging from what happened is that Trump was a reckless individual trying to uh, destroy democracy from within, and Trumpism itself uh, tried different strategies, I mean, uh, legal strategies and eventually a coup, and for that coup, he uh, he was uh, using fascists and and, uh, uh, and and extremist groups in in what he it was already an alliance between populist fascists and, and conservative enablers. So he won't count, he was counting on all these groups, and and it's clear that that he was stopped because he doesn't represent. I mean, these groups do not represent the majority of America. Well, apparently they're going to have a couple of. Um witnesses. One of them is Carolyn Edwards, who is a Capitol Hill police officer. The other one is Nick Quested, who's a British documentarian who was embedded with the Proud Boys. So I'm not sure exactly how they're going to lay out the case because they've apparently spoken to over 1,000 witnesses uh, and they've generated over 100,000 documents. So I guess this won't all happen in one hearing tonight, right, Federico? No, I mean, and we historians are, are extremely thankful because what we, what, I mean, this committee is also contributing to to the future in terms of knowing exactly what happened and how it can be averted for the future. So this is like, I mean, they are producing a major amount of uh, of testimonies and documents that that history itself has to be thankful for it. So, but the public has to stick with this, right? It's. I think the hearing is going to go on for what three hours tonight, but there'll be subsequent hearings, surely. Yes, absolutely, and and it's important also that I think that the media follows this, you know, to 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 its own. I mean, uh, entirely because this is. Uh, I think it knowing what happened, what happened is essential to the future of democracy. Well, it's certainly you know, being compared to Watergate, but <laughs> the Watergate was a, a slow story. We know there was no tele televising the break-in and the plumbers breaking into the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate, but there was sure a hell of a lot of televising live the January the 6th coup attempt. We all saw it. I think they're going to show some footage just tonight, but um, do you feel that the delaying tactics and the time that it's taken has in any way weakened the visceral case that we all had watching it on that day because it was so horrible. And then, of course, to be on the inside, to be the subject of that attack, like Vice President Pence, who Trump apparently was perfectly happy to have hanged. His own, you know, his followers are saying, hang Mike Pence. But in conversations with on that day with Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, he indicated that it wouldn't be a bad thing if if <laughs> Pence was hanged. So yes, I mean this, this shows that you know uh, you know to what extent Trump is a, is an extremist, right? That that believes that extreme political violence is a, a political solution to his problems. And the problem was that democracy didn't work for him. He couldn't stay. I mean, he couldn't be. He couldn't remain as, 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 as a leader of this country, so he resorted to all this. Now, I think that we are facing a, a big challenge here, which is the challenge of, of you know, of fascist lies and, and, and propaganda techniques, because you can produce as much evidence 
as, 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 as it has been produced. And yet there are these blind followers that will not buy, that they will just stick with the lies. So I'm not so sure this is for them. Many of these people cannot be convinced. And many of these people, of course, include uh, important members of the Republican Party. But this is for the majority of the country. This is for the rest of us that still stick to reality rather than medical uh, uh, narratives uh, and a political cult, which is the political cult of Trump. Right, but the people who would most benefit from this information are the people who watch Fox News, and Fox News is not going to cover the hearings. Yes, I mean, I am a little bit more pessimistic. pessimistic. I think many of those people are lost uh, to the cause of democracy, and they will be the last to realize that their emperor is totally naked. I mean, but in the meantime, what is important is to keep the majorities that made uh, Trump uh, lose in the first place. So just in closing then, Federica, do you think that the Democrats in this November election and before then in their campaign have got to run on the issue of democracy and the preservation of American democracy and make the case that not only was American democracy threatened on January the 6th, it continues to be threatened by Trump's Republican Party. Well, let me put it this way, because I, I'm not a, you know, uh, I'm not a political analyst, and so, so I'm an historian, and and what I will say that it would be important that that remains an issue, uh, you know, for politicians, uh, you know, for politicians interested in democracy. Now, as to which is the part that should be emphasized, of course, like I mean, that is an open question, but this should remain an issue, I think. Not perhaps, I mean, I'm not even sure where the issue, but certainly an issue in, in the campaign. Well, Federico Finkelstein, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Federico Finkelstein, who's a professor of history and director of the Janey Program in Latin American Studies at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lang College. He's the author of seven books on fascism, populism, dirty wars, the Holocaust, and Jewish history in Latin America and Europe. And his latest books are From Fascism to Populism in History, A Brief History of Fascist Lies, and most recently, Fascist Mythologies, The History and Politics of Unreason in Borges, Freud, and Schmidt. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, White Replacement Theory is Fascism's New Name. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of whether Ukraine could win small or win big in the over 100-day war Putin has unleashed with no end in sight that is beginning to resemble World War I trench warfare. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, the History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, 
And he has an article of foreign affairs, What if Ukraine wins? Victory in the war would not end the conflict with Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Very nice to be back again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Ukraine is in a long, sort of almost like a World War I trench warfare in the Donbass region. They're taking pretty heavy casualties, but the Russians, on the other hand, aren't making much progress. But my understanding is that the Russians are now uh, claiming that they have a land bridge to Crimea, which has obviously been one of their objectives. Do they also have the water supply then reconnected to Crimea, which was certainly something that was hurting them? They do indeed, and they are linking that whole area with transportation routes, which is something they were not able to do before Russia had to build an expensive bridge to connect Crimea to mainland Russia. And now they're sort of integrating it uh, piece by piece. So it's a significant development. And is there any indication that they could call this a victory? Well, that really lies in 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 Putin's uh, in hands, Putin's hands in terms of what he wishes to call a victory. Uh, it could be notched as a uh, as a significant development. Of course, the war was begun on the twenty fourth of February in Russia as a special military operation in the Donbas region. So it can certainly be pegged to that uh, kind of war aim. Uh, but it's still a relatively small victory, given what Russia has invested in all of this. So it's hard for me to see the Russians stopping here uh, and Putin waving the flag of victory at this moment. And from what we know, which is not a lot, about Putin's health and his inner circle, it appears that he gets advice from sort of rabid hawks like uh, Nikolai Petrushev, right? So it's not a good situation in terms of Putin's uh, grasp on on what's happening in the broader world. I mean, I guess the oligarchs don't seem to have a lot of influence, do they, in, in, in suggesting that uh, this war is hurting Russia's reputation, uh, its diplomacy, and its, and its economy. That's absolutely correct. The oligarchs have no influence over the war, even the more economically liberal members of the inner circle in the Kremlin, and there are still a few, uh, are not calling the shots with the war. Exactly as you say, it's a small group of hawkish advisors uh, who have Putin's ears. And Putin just gave a press conference today to entrepreneurs in Russia, where he claimed to be modeling his actions in Ukraine on the glorious achievements of Peter the Great. So, um, you know, it's sort of clear in which lines, historical lines, Putin is placing himself, uh, and they are uh, the lines of Russian empire. Well, they also may be the delusions of a dictator. That's very true. There's certainly nobody in Putin's inner circle or in his family circle, such as it is, who can contradict him. So his whim uh, is Russia's command. Uh, Russia is a dictatorship, uh, and to that degree, uh, it uh, is going to be subject to the psychology of Putin. That's absolutely correct. And is there any... Well, it's difficult to know what his health is like, but if he has cancer, is some have suggested, and apparently there's also a suggestion that there was, there was some kind of assassination attempt in May, he's more likely to get worse in terms of his mindset, right, than better. I think that's true, and of course he's about to turn 70, which is not uh, an especially advanced age, but it's not a young age for a, uh, for a political leader, and he's under very, very considerable strain with the war uh, and with the Russian economy. So, you know, the kind of Putin that we've seen 
over the last year is a bit of a different Putin, a higher level of paranoia, edgier, uh, more intemperate, uh, angrier, and I doubt that he'll be you know, sort of going in the other direction psychologically anytime soon, if ever. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and the department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, What if Ukraine Wins? Victory in the War would not end the conflict with Russia. So let's talk about what you've written about in your article, Michael, in terms of the two choices for Ukraine. Uh, A victory uh, would be either winning small or winning big. So let's start with winning small. What would that mean? Winning small would get Ukraine back to the country's borders as they were on the 23rd of February 2022. So it would be the return of Kherson, and Mariupol, the two cities that Russia has taken so far, uh, and all of the remaining territories that have been taken by the Russians in the last couple of months. It's ambitious enough, that goal, uh, but there are very serious military analysts who believe that that goal uh, is, is a plausible one, and a plausible one perhaps in the next couple of months. So winning big, if, that's, if winning small is not plausible, winning big is, is out of the question, right? No, let me, let me emphasize, this is plausible. Uh, there are serious military analysts who believe that Ukraine can win small, in, in effect, turning uh, the borders of the country back to what they were before the Russian invasion of 2022. So, but isn't there a, at least a difference in the casualties you take when you're on the defensive as opposed to on the offensive? In other words, the Russians were throwing in ill-trained troops that the Ukrainians initially in their initial invasion, and they got slaughtered. But now, if the Ukrainians have to go on the offensive, aren't they likely to take more casualties? That's absolutely correct, that the, the dangers of going on the offensive are, are, are quite considerable. And as has been reported in the last 48 hours, nobody quite knows what the status of Ukraine's military is. But they've gotten a lot of sophisticated military hardware. Their morale is excellent. Uh, and... They seem to have uh, a high level of sophistication in their military planning. So you could put all those factors together and see how they might be able to come up with a successful offensive this summer. A contingent factor uh, is, of course, the readiness and the status of Russian troops, to what degree they've been decimated by the war so far. And again, nobody quite knows what's going on there. But if the Russians are in a state of internal disarray, uh, then Ukraine could have some very considerable successes in the short term. But is there another possibility, and that is that Ukraine could accept a limited uh, victory as long as it had uh, still controlled access to the Black Sea, and then Western aid would pour in the Russian, uh, what, $500 billion or so that's frozen in European banks uh, that might be used to reconstruct in other words, if you could turn Ukraine into an incredible economic and democratic success story with the rule of law and a thriving economy, that might be their ultimate revenge. Well, I think those are all excellent points and very important points for the long term. 
But to get to any of that, the reconstruction, the rehabilitation of the country's economy, you have to come to some kind of conclusion with the war. And out of that will be done through an agreement with Russia, which seems very far-fetched at the moment, and I think will be for a long time to come. Or Ukraine's armies could induce a kind of stalemate, a frozen uh, conflict, and really be able to defend their perimeter uh, all around the country, uh, in which case Russia would be discontented, but unable to change uh, the situation. Uh, But we're pretty far from those two uh, scenarios at the present moment. So Ukraine has to get there first, and if they can, then I think they'll have, you know, a lot of people, a lot of countries eager to help with the reconstruction of the country. But even if you were able to get to that point, you would still have a Ukrainian army in the east, right, in a kind of World War One trench line? Correct, as has been the case really since 2014, when the hostilities, you know, calmed down in 2014, early 2015, but it's been World War One like there now for the last the last eight years or so. So that would be their future. I mean, it, it, you say in your article, uh, Michael Kimmich, that if it were ever to come to pass, meaning any kind of peace deal, with Putin's Russia, the approach must be distrust and verify. Yeah, so that phrase is a bit of a joke uh, or a pun. There's a famous Cold War phrase, trust but verify, that both Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev were fond of. Uh, now it's, I think, a different situation. I think Putin has to be recognized as completely untrustworthy. And so he could sign a deal. He could sponsor a ceasefire. He could pull back. He could say a lot of nice diplomatic words. And then six months later, he could reinvade. And so that's the reality that Ukraine has to live with. Uh, Whatever pieces of paper they get, they're not going to matter very much. Uh, And so it's going to have to guarantee its security the hard way. Uh, And that will be its reality until there's a Another re- another leader in Russia, somebody other than Putin, or somebody who thinks differently. But until then, Ukraine can't get around that circumstance. But there's also another reality for Russia, isn't there? And that is that Ukraine is, in effect, a NATO country. It may not be declared a NATO country, but it's more and more armed by NATO equipment, NATO training. So, and of course, you've got... Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I, I'm not sure how much a spoiler Erdogan in Turkey can be in that regard, but still a lot of it seems to be backfiring on Putin, isn't it? I would agree with that. I think that Putin has set goals for himself in Ukraine that are unachievable. I don't think that he can control the country, you know, however far his soldiers get in the Donbass. It's not going to give him political control of the country. And you've had a real consolidation, as you mentioned, uh, of NATO uh, and an extreme consolidation of Western support for Ukraine's military, which is making it one of the most formidable fighting forces uh, on the European continent. So all of that is not in the strategic interest of Russia, and there's a way in which Putin is uh, profoundly counterproductive uh, in his actions. Now, he may not see it in those terms. It may take him a long time to see it in those terms if he ever does, but I think it's a very sustainable analysis. It's, it's not just a criminal war. It's a self-defeating war for Russia. And do you think Putin is capable of recognizing the massive failures of the Russian military, which are to a large extent because of corruption, corruption which is endemic in his regime, which is a kleptocracy? I mean, he's, his buddy, his chef, uh, Prigozhin, shortchanges the military, pockets most of the money. Uh, they're not fed. They're not equipped. I think that's one of the big takeaways, isn't it, that, of just how hollow the Russian military really is? 
No, it's very true. And, you know, that speaks to larger patterns in Russian politics and and economic life. And whether Putin recognizes that, I think probably he does. I mean, he's not a, uh, he's not a naive man. Uh, he's well-schooled in the structures of Russian corruption going back to the 1990s. Uh, and before he may think that he may think that that's just how the world works, that everybody's like that. Uh, but my guess is from some of the reshufflings and firings that have gone on in the Russian government and military that he's very unhappy about uh, how the war began uh, and the dis- dysfunctional aspects of the Russian military. You know, he may not be able to say it openly, but I'm sure he sees it. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, obviously, the hearings are starting tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, looking into the January the 6th, and there's an expectation that they will put former President Trump at the center of an insurrection, which I think could be fairly described as a fascist coup attempt. What happens in this country if the Republicans take over in November and Trump comes back in 2024? That would be a gift to Putin, because throughout... Trump's tenure, he was the gift that kept on giving for Putin. And do you think that we could, you know, unless this thing is solved in uh, in some way in Ukraine, if it drags on, is there a possibility that we will have a world run by gangsters in effect? I I, I don't know. I have a somewhat different reading of things uh, than your question implies. First of all, I don't think that the midterm elections are going to do much to change the course of U.S. foreign policy, which is, after all, set in the White House. And most of the Republicans on Capitol Hill are very supportive of the war effort. Uh, A few have dissented, but uh, congressional Republicans are not dissenters when it comes to U.S. policy toward Russia or toward Ukraine, which is to say Biden administration policy. With Trump, it's a very, very complicated question. (laughs) Two countries entered the NATO alliance under Trump. Uh, it's Trump who sent lethal weapons to, uh, to Ukraine, and a lot of military spending in Europe went up under Trump. Uh, so you have all of that as precedent, which is somewhat complicated. I think what would be really in peril if Trump were, ter- were to return in 2024 is the transatlantic alliance. I think there you would see many, many more cracks in the edifice, and that would be, of course, very dangerous for Ukraine, and that would be uh, a kind of advantage for Putin. But uh, it's not as if Putin would just sweep the board if Trump were to return. So you feel that, at least in terms of the Republicans in the House and Senate, they're going to stick with... I mean, we don't... You have to admit, Michael, we there's not much bipartisanship, and the fact that there is some bipartisanship over Ukraine is is different. Uh, but as, you know, we're in an election year, I'm just wondering how long that the comedy will last. I think the Republicans are going to do two, two things to answer your question. I think that they're going to keep on supporting Biden when it comes to providing military aid to Ukraine and sanctioning Russia and those policies. And I think at the same time, and it will be duplicitous or hypocritical, they're going to be hitting Biden for the president who caused all of this inflation and perhaps linking that inflation to uh, to the war, uh, which is a contradiction. But I think that that's, that's, the, that's the tack that the Republicans will pursue. But they won't change the policy. But just in the last minute, there is surely a link with the war. Ever since the war began, the price of oil has shot up. Putin has a de facto alliance with Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, MBS and MBZ in the, in the Emirates and in Saudi Arabia with OPEC+. And so there's been some speculation that 
the $2 billion that went to Jared Kushner and the $1 billion that went to Mnuchin uh, uh, could be a down payment on the Saudis financing a Trump comeback. So at this point, the war and inflation, which is being driven by the price of oil, you know, maybe Putin's not doing so badly because the money's pouring in, isn't it, from oil revenues? I mean, I think it's uh, it's a very helpful framing. I think Putin has done badly on the battlefield. He has, as you indicated earlier, he's mobilized the West and like-minded countries uh, against him, but he's not a man without leverage. Uh, and his leverage is exactly what you described. It's his control now over global food supply. Uh, it's his leverage uh, on oil prices, which high oil prices are good for for Russia uh, and create a lot of problems for countries that are sanctioning Russia. And no doubt Putin is going to use that leverage uh, to the hilt. So it's very, very important to remind ourselves of the kind of leverage that he does have, which is probably in a way more global leverage than it is over the exact destiny of Ukraine itself. Well, Marco Kimmage, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure, Ian, as always. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, What If Ukraine Wins? Victory in the War Would Not End the Conflict with Russia. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back investigating the global food crisis caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chris Barrett, who's a professor of applied economics and management and an international professor of agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a professor in the Departments of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agriculture, Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the S. Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Barrett. Thanks very much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there is a worsening food crisis, which the head of the United Nations warned about um, yesterday. He said the invasion of, of Ukraine has created a worsening situation affecting 1.6 billion people, and the war threatens to unleash an unprecedented wave of hunger and misery, leaving social and economic chaos in its wake. And there's only one way to stop this gathering storm, uh, Gutierrez says, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine must end. So given that that's not likely to happen are there any other ways to get the grains and, and sunflower oil and fertilizers from Ukraine to the market? 
Yeah, Ian, it's important to keep in mind here that the issue is not whether the world has adequate supplies of grains and vegetable oils and other foodstuffs. The question is, what's the price at which people can access those? And the disruptions caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine have driven prices up because both Russia and Ukraine are major suppliers. So they're major low-cost suppliers, especially of wheat and sunflower oil and to a lesser degree maize and potatoes. But also it's disrupted global oil markets and therefore transport costs that are heavily influenced by liquid fuel prices. Transport costs have gone up as well. And transport costs are a relatively large share of the retail price consumers pay for food. So the combination of of having to go find replacement suppliers for low-cost Ukrainian and to a lesser degree Russian supplies and higher costs to deliver the commodities is just driving prices sharply higher and makes it unaffordable for many poor people around the world. Well, the European Union have accused Moscow of weaponizing food supplies to gain an advantage in the war. And the European Commission President Leslie von Leyden has said, let's stick to the truth. It's Putin's war of aggression that fuels the food crisis and nothing else. And uh, the European Council President Charles Michel accused Kremlin of weaponizing food supplies and surrounding their actions with a web of lies, Soviet style. So it seems that Russia's somewhat on the defensive because it's pretty obvious that they're the cause of this problem. And, you know, they have to kind of explain to African countries what's happening. But they're blaming it largely on Ukraine for mining the coast around uh, the port of Odessa. Then in Turkey, there have been negotiations between the foreign ministers of Russia and Turkey to open up a corridor through which grain can be exported. But the Ukrainians are somewhat wary of that because Russia is asking them to remove the mines in the area around Odessa to allow this for the safe export of grains. And Putin has pledged that Moscow wouldn't use the corridors to launch an attack, you know, landing on the coasts, which, of course, the Ukrainians are quite concerned about. And, of course, the Ukrainians and the EU basically don't take Putin's pledge as being worth very much because Putin earlier insisted he had no plans to invade Ukraine in the first place. So... That's, um, I guess I'm trying to describe the standoff at the moment. Yeah, well, there clearly is a standoff, but let's beware the understandable Russian temptation to distract people with tangential detail. Um, Yes, Ukraine has mined parts of the, the Black Sea to prevent Russian invasion by sea. That's sensible military strategy. Yes, that will certainly disrupt a small share of um, seabound freight outgoing from Black Sea ports, but a small share. The big disruptions here are coming from the broader disruptions of both overland and sea-based exports from Ukraine, as well as massive disruption of Ukrainian agricultural production this season. I mean, Ukrainian farmers were simply unable to plant the same acreage that they usually would plant during this spring's uh, planting period. And and the same is true for parts of, of Russia bordering Ukraine as well, by the way. 
And as I emphasized earlier, fuel prices have gone up and driving up the costs of fuel for farm machinery, as well as the cost of transit, all of these things are driving fuel prices up. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has not only done violence to Ukrainians, it's doing violence to poor people throughout the world who already struggled to feed their families. It's not that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the only cause of the present food crisis we face in so much of the world, but it is a major and the most recent cause. It's coming on top of the massive disruptions caused by COVID and the serious disruptions caused by the climate crisis. So we have a perfect storm. The three C's of the climate crisis, COVID and conflict are now causing widespread havoc, even in places where bullets aren't flying. And again, I'm speaking with Chris Barrett, who's a professor of applied economics and management and an international professor of agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a professor in the Departments of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He's the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, edits the book series Agriculture and Economics and Food Policy, and co-edits the Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. Well, according to the United Nations, Russia and Ukraine supply about 40% of the wheat consumed in Africa, and prices in Africa have already risen by 23%, and uh, Ukraine contributes 42% of sunflower oil uh, exported around the world, 16% of maize, 10% of barley, and 9% of wheat. And, uh, and fertilizer is also a big issue, is it not? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Fertilizer is a big issue because Russia in particular is a major exporter of fertilizers, especially nitrogenous fertilizers. Um, but the the fertilizer shortage, again, is a, a shortage that is driving up prices. There are there are adequate supplies of fertilizers and there are lots of substitutes. Uh, you know, we generate lots of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium in waste products, in animal and human waste, in food waste, which can be recaptured and repurposed to, to help to replace some of the, the inorganic fertilizers whose trade is being disrupted right now. The trade figures, the food trade figures you reported earlier are, are accurate, but slightly misleading in the following way. International trade is an essential shock absorber in the global food system. We're going to get droughts and floods or wars in different places at different times, which will disrupt supplies. And trade is the mechanism by which places suddenly facing a shortfall in supply can, can fill in the gaps. But the vast majority of food is grown in the country in which it's consumed. More than 70% of food worldwide is consumed from the feedstocks grown in the farms and raised in the in the ranches and in the fisheries within that consumer's country's borders. Trade is a buffer. It helps keep us from seeing big price spikes. And this is one reason why a crucial policy response right now, as we're seeing prices rise because of conflict and climate change, a crucial policy response is to keep trade channels open. Several countries are embarking on dangerous and reckless and very short-sighted strategies of banning exports of food from their countries. All this really does is it temporarily disrupts the market further, generating added market volatility, 
temporarily higher prices for importing countries. It's what we economists refer to as a beggar thy neighbor strategy. It's it's hurting the other guy, the other guy who has long been your customer, which isn't typically a very good strategy for businesses. So keeping trade channels flowing is really essential right now in a time of such shocks to help stabilize prices. But trade is not ultimately the source of most of our diets. It is the domestic production on which our our day-to-day meals depend. But countries like the United States, Canada, and Australia do produce a lot of wheat. Don't they produce a surplus? Absolutely. So Ukraine and, and Russia are major wheat exporters, but by their no means the only exporters. The U.S. is a major exporter, as is Canada, as is France. Moreover, it's not just about who exports, it's about who produces domestically. The largest wheat consumer markets in the world are are China and India. And as China's domestic production goes, as goes India's domestic production, so goes the global market. So people were worried earlier, a few months ago, that China's winter wheat harvest was going to come in much lower than average. It seems that that the harvest has come out okay, and that's one reason why we've actually seen uh, global food prices on average tick slightly down over the last month because some of the expectations that the markets had about potential shortfalls in production in importing countries have not been realized. So that the net import requirements of major markets like China and India seem somewhat less than people feared they might be just a couple of months ago. But the surpluses in the U.S. and and Canada, for example, is there any way that those could be exported to Africa to make up for the shortfall from Ukraine and Russia? I mean, is is it possible that we could subsidize exports to stop the starvation of Africans? Well, absolutely. And indeed, the U.S. government has uh, has supplemented its annual international food assistance appropriations to the tune of, of several hundred million dollars precisely for that purpose, to, to be able to uh, provide more generous provision of food assistance in places that are really struggling to import at higher prices. It's not just importing wheat. Uh, it's, it's importing any of a variety of substitute grains in addition to wheat. Much is going to depend on on how the Northern Hemisphere growing seasons work in the major producing countries. How does China's wheat harvest and Canada and the U.S.'s wheat harvest go this year? It's still too early to tell. Thus far, the early season uh, progress seems reasonably good, according to, for example, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's reporting and forecasts. But it remains to be seen. We have several months ahead still of growing season. And if there are if there are major disruptions uh, that, that cause a, a shortfall in yields across the major growing regions in, in wheat in the northern hemisphere, then we'll likely see some more price uh, price increases that are that are significant and problematic. If we get bumper crops, I think we'll start to see pretty quick replenishment of, of global stocks and and prices will begin to come down reasonably quickly, although they never come down as quickly as they go up. The old adage is prices rise like a rocket and fall like a feather. So the heat wave expected in the West and the Southwest, the grain in the, in the U.S. is mostly grown, what, in the North and the Midwest? 
That's exactly right. I mean, the, the drought affecting the western U.S. is a real problem, especially for agricultural producers in those areas. But there's relatively little in the way of staple grains produced in that part of the U.S. So is there any activity in this regard to help out countries in Africa or apparently Lebanon and other countries also have been affected by the cutoff of exports from Ukraine and Russia? Yeah, well, much of it turns on on assistance. It turns on humanitarian assistance to respond to these food emergencies. The United Nations has appeals out right now for for countries and individual philanthropists to contribute to help meet the needs of, of people who are struggling to feed their families. In some places, like the, the humanitarian appeal for displaced Ukrainians, uh, the response has been quite generous. There's been a lot of funds flowing, and that will enable the international community to feed internally displaced persons and, and refugees spilling over the border into neighboring countries in Europe. But in much of the rest of the world, especially in, in places that are not of great geopolitical strategic importance, southern Madagascar, Haiti, uh, South Sudan, we're struggling to fill the, the, the humanitarian appeals right now. And, and that is, unfortunately, the first order need. Uh, people can't wait six months to the next harvest to eat. We simply have to be able to procure food for them to meet the very immediate needs. And the head of the UN Food Program, Governor Beasley, former governor of South Carolina, Republican governor, he's been quite passionate. He was on 60 Minutes and he's been making a lot of noise because it's tragic to have all of that wheat sitting in silos in Ukraine. And a lot of it, of course, the Russians have occupied and looted I mean, I don't know whether you can get it by land through Moldova to other ports, because the whole Black Sea is, is blockaded in any case. But still, is there any other way to get this grain out apart from uh, through oh, well, the Black Sea? Yeah, I'm not a logistics expert, um, but you, one can bring grain by rail and road, but there are obvious risks in the war zone. And most importantly, there are a lot of added costs. I mean, the reason why... Uh, why ocean freight is the primary vehicle for transporting grain is that it's by far the cheapest means of transporting grain. But keep in mind, too, that with the pandemic disruptions in supply chains, the cost of ocean freight, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the cost of ocean freight services have skyrocketed. They're up several fold in just the last two years. So even without this invasion, just the added cost of moving freight from exporting countries to importing zones is up sharply. And that was a big reason why we saw a sharp run up in food prices even before late February. It was because the cost of moving the grain from one place to another has become exorbitant. Well, I thank you for joining us and filling us in uh, on this tragic situation, which is a byproduct, of course, of an incredibly tragic war that all indications are it's going to go on for a long time. So... I appreciate your time, uh, Chris Barrett. Well, thanks so much for having me, in and for your and your listeners' interest in this really important topic. Stay well. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Chris Barrett, who's a professor of applied economics and management and an international professor of agriculture at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, as well as a professor in the Department of Economics and Global Development at Cornell University. He is the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Food Policy, 
edits the book series Agriculture and Economics and Food Policy and co-edits the Elsevier Handbook of Agricultural Economics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes out in the middle.